Welcome to The Fight with Teddy Atlas, presented by Dynamic Striking. I'm Ken Rideout, joined as always by in Boxing Hall of Famer Teddy Atlas and the great, today's special guest, the leader of the UFC, the great Dana White. Dana, how you doing, man? I'm awesome. How are you guys? Good, Dana. Dana, thank you for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Uh, Thanks happy, for having me. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays to you and your family. Same to uh, you, brother. Yeah, and uh, for a happy new year. I'll get right to it. Well, first of all, before I get right to it, I'd like to thank Ken, my partner here, for not using the uh, opening that he's been using uh, <laughs> and omitting that for this one time at least where he usually says the voice of MMA. So um, <laughs> he usually says Teddy Atlas, the, the voice of MMA. And I'm just... <laughs> Dana, you'll appreciate this. You can imagine the, the responses we get in the comments when I go, and now joined as always by the voice of MMA, Teddy Atlas. The fans, the hardcore fans, they go crazy. Like they oh, can't yeah. get the, they can't accept the joke. They're like, hey, this, is this guy crazy? Is he a moron? And I'm like, deal with it, dude. We're taking over. Teddy's taken over. I <laughs> so love anyway. it. I love it. <laughs> I'm glad he omitted that. Listen, Dana, as I said, thanks for coming on. And um, congratulations for the last 20 years of building the brand of the UFC to the level that you have. I mean, it's pretty. Thank you. I appreciate it, brother. Man, it's pretty extraordinary. Uh, pretty extraordinary, to be honest with you. And, you know, you've done something that, quite frankly, I didn't think it was possible to do. You've surpassed boxing in the ratings. And, you know, I, I get a lot of people that get kind of crazy with me. People like some of the uh, some of the network heads, like the guy over at Showtime, whatever his name is. And well, he's he, a jackass, so that, that's, uh, yeah. that, that's not surprising. <laughs> I mean, you know, he they get they get all kinds of bent out of shape. Oh, no. You know, it's it's not accurate. It's this, is that, that he shouldn't be saying that. And it is accurate because I say it within the realm that is the proper realm. I say it on a week-to-week -week basis. You have surpassed, the UFC has surpassed ratings for regular boxing shows. Now, look, I'm not talking about the universe where a Canelo will fight a Triple G, one of those fights, or where if uh, the fight never happened, but if Fury had fought Joshua. That's a different universe. But as far as, uh, and you guys do pretty damn big universes when you go on those big pay-per-view cards, but I'm talking about on a week-to-week -week basis. You have, you have leaped past boxing with the rate, and it's Listen, the, the people that get mad shouldn't get mad at me for telling what I see because it's a simple formula. It's not that freaking complicated. You're putting on competitive fights. Every week, you know you're going to get a good competitive fight where the favorite could easily lose. And where it's on a regular basis where a guy with five laws or six laws, seven, it's not a dead sentence like it is in boxing. Those guys have learned how to fight. And what it means is they can compete with anybody in the freaking world. And they do. And the problem with, the problem with boxing is that these networks with their promoters, the promoters, really the network is like a sugar daddy for the promoter. It's, it's kind of, I hate to talk that, that plain and that honest about it and that roar about it. I'm sorry. And, and I know people are going to be all pissed off at me, and it's okay. It won't be the first time. Get in line. But they, they go and they, they sell what, themselves in a way that they connect with the promoter, and the promoters put on A's versus B's, the house fighter with the opponent. And most of the time, you know how that's going to end. Not only the house fight is going to win, but it's not going to be competitive. And people get tired of that. People don't want to go to a movie when they know what the end is going to be before the movie starts. So they get tired of it. And what do they do? They go to the UFC. So I, I just wanted, I was just wondering if you agree with that and what your thoughts were. Yeah, you're 100% right. And listen, at the end of the day, you and I both love the sport of boxing, but you and I are both brutally honest about all the problems with the sport of boxing. And, uh, and, and everything that you're saying is reality, and these guys don't want to hear reality. 
The truth of the matter is we are the largest pay-per-view provider on earth. Um, and when, when you talk about Showtime, Showtime is a very, very small universe. You know what I mean? Those guys, Showtime doesn't, and all these cord cutters the, the, now, not a lot of people have Showtime. So when these fights happen, there aren't a lot of people that are watching them. I'm on ESPN, you know, and, 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 and there's a big difference. Um, and, and you're absolutely right. Every week we put on fights with the best versus the best in the world. And many times the massive underdogs in this sport win, which makes Juliana the sport Pena. fun, exciting. You know, you get these holy shit moments. And more importantly, it makes it very fun to bet on, too. So I, I agree with everything you're saying without, you know, sounding like we're smashing the sport of boxing. Now listen, Dana. We all love it. Dana, boxing is my life. I've been in it almost, I, you know, I'm, I'm, sometimes I hesitate to say it, but almost 50 years of my life. And right. I don't hesitate because I'm embarrassed by it. It's been good to my family. It's been good to me. Um, I love boxing. It's, it's my life. But, you, you know, you have, to, you have to tell the truth. Right. And, you know. And you know what? All these problems, Teddy, are why we've been able to, to, to overcome boxing and beat boxing. I saw this shit over 20 years ago. I saw all the problems and I wanted to change, you know, everything that I thought they were doing wrong in boxing uh, the, with the way that we ran the UFC. You know, for the years that I had the platform at ESPN, I, I'm not putting a medal on myself, but I, I got paid to do a job. But at the end of the day, I had a choice to make. Do the job, get my paycheck, get the freak out of there, or... You know, once in a while, try to help to support it because you're in that position where you could do it. A little bit. A little bit. No hero stuff over here. But I, I went to Congress and I interviewed. I went to the Senate and Congress. I interviewed Senator McCain to try to get a national commission where all the other major sports have. To, to get some accountability with these promoters. To, to be able to just make things a little better for the fighters. And for the fans, where, you know, you wouldn't just have one or two power brokers um, in a position where, now it's probably three or four, but in a position where they're not really caring about the sport. They're, they're only caring about their little piece of territory. You know, not the sport overall. Now, you, listen, you're in an advantageous position. You know, I've called you a dictator before. Not a bad dictator. You know, not a guy that chops heads off or anything like that. But... <laughs> You know, but uh, sometimes we need a dictator. In yeah, I've way, chopped a few heads off, believe me. Well, yeah, <laughs> not literally, probably not. But I get it. I get it. But at the end of the day, you know, you can call parents dictators. If they're a good parent, at a certain point, they've got to be a dictator. I mean, there's got to be somebody who's in charge. And what you do is you do it obviously for yourself, but you do it for the benefit of the sport. And everyone benefits. You want the brand of that sport to be the best again. And it has become the best because of your formula, because of your philosophy, because you're in charge. Because you say, hey, listen, this, these are the fights we're putting on. We're not putting fights on that really, quite frankly, shouldn't even be sanctioned because you get those fights too often in boxing. And because of that, the brand has grown. And... You know, there's, there's so many situations in boxing where a czar, a national commission, would be needed to just put this sport on the track that it really belongs if it's going to be the greatest sport, which I think is the greatest sport in the world. But if it's going to really live up to that for the benefit of the fighters and the fans, then you need somebody to change things, not to allow these promoters. I'm not going to get heavy into it because it gets a little crazy. But when I was talking to to Senator Senator McCain, and we had a we had a little committee together of good people, and we were doing this in secret, sort of, I guess, until it was going to get to the point that we were hoping it was going to get to. And we were having meetings every week on the phone uh, with McCain with his people and. We formulated a sort of working script, if you will, a, a working possible National Commission um, policies. And we would put it together, the right things, looking out for the file, you know, all that stuff. 
and we ran into roadblocks. And McCain said, I'm, I'm getting a roadblock from the, from the senator in Nevada, from this guy, from that guy. And we all looked up. It's, it's public domain. They had given, they had been given donations when they campaigned, obviously, by both Aram and King. And, and they were asking to see what we were doing before it could get passed. You know, it has to go through the House, it has to go through all the things it has to go through. And they were asking, and I couldn't believe it. I literally said to McCain, it was about seven of us on a conference call, I said, are you serious? You mean, they, they said that we have to show it to Aram and we have to show it to King for their approval? That would be like trying to do a, a new drug law and you have to show it to the Medallion Cartel. I mean, for permission to do this new drug law. And it, it was just very frustrating. And I think that's where the, well, obviously, that's where the benefit of a dictator comes in, as long as he's not really chopping heads off, is that <laughs> you can get those things done that are for the best. And I'll finish on this. And it doesn't do me any greatness when I say this for myself, but it's all right. Even over there at ESPN, and, and a lot of, it's not just there. It's a lot of the uh, networks now. But what these promoters, because the network's partner, obviously, is the promoter, what they're turning these networks is into is a farm system for the promoter to continue to sign fighters for years, good fighters, to sign them, guaranteeing they're going to be on TV, and then for the next X amount of years, just fight sub-level opponents until they get to a title. That's what it's become. It's a farm system to develop fighters for the benefit of the promoter to get these guys to 20-0, 16-0, 17-0, fight for a title, have the title, and just keep building from there for as many years as they can keep the thing going with the network. Do you agree with that? Uh, that's all. 100%. You're absolutely right. And, and it's one of the many things that has broken the sport of boxing. Um, you know, when me and my partners got into this 20 years ago, our goal and what has remained my goal is to build this sport into the biggest sport in the world. You know, and, and 15 years ago, people thought I was nuts when I was saying that. But look at what we've done. Look at what we're doing. That's never been the goal of boxing. It's never been the goal of boxing. Every time they put on a fight. It's like a going out of business sale. How much money can we can we steal from everybody? You know, and, and every time you turn off the TV, you're pissed off that you stayed home on Saturday and, and, and watched the fight. You wish you did something else. I and love when you not- describe it that way, Dane, as a going out of business sale, because that's exactly right. Let's get as much money as we can. Never mind what happens the next day. We'll start over again tomorrow. There's no 100%. thought like there's no forethought. And and you don't even care if the fans are happy with, with the product. You don't care because you know, that, that guy is going to fight for over another year again anyway, and everybody will forget how shitty this fight was, and uh, they'll buy the next one. Look, I hate to use the saying, but the saying is true. Um, every once in a while, they throw the fans a bone. <laughs> you know, they, they no, they do. I'm not calling the fans a, the dogs, because I'd be a dog too then. But they, they throw them a bone every once in a while, like a, a good fight. But then it's right yep. back to business as usual. Here's the next question, Dana. The only question that what I just finished talking about begs to be asked. You talked some years ago about coming into the boxing business. Is that still a possibility? Yeah, I'm. I'm still kicking the tires and looking around. It's it's a it's a it's a very complicated. Uh, you know, the, the sport's such a mess. It's it's literally a mess, and uh, you know, to, to to pull it off, you have to actually get in there and clean it up. And, you know, I've been working on this for years. And uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll see what happens. Hey, guys, today's interview is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the all-in-one daily drink to support better health and peak performance. If you've been watching the show, you know I'm a big fan of this product. They've been with us from the beginning. I love it. I credit them with a lot of my athletic success. If, again, if you've been following along, you know what I've been doing and running. 
Um, these guys spent 10 years with top nutritionists and doctors to create this formula. It's made from 75 whole food sourced ingredients. It's got vitamins, minerals, prebiotics, etc., etc. Part of the reason I take it is not necessarily to get um, what's in the athletic greens. It's to avoid missing out in my regular diet on what I know I need, which is contained in athletic greens. I know I'm getting all my vitamins and minerals when I take athletic greens. So taken in conjunction with a healthy diet, you can't lose this is literally all you need to stay on top of your immunity with 12 servings of fruits and vegetables. No need for multivitamins or whatever else you might be taking. Athletic Greens has you covered. Athletic Greens has given our listeners 10 free travel packs with your first purchase. So whether you're looking to boost your energy levels, support your immune system, or address gut health, Athletic Greens is the way to go. Simply visit athleticgreens.com atlas to claim the special offer of 10 free travel packs with your first purchase. Again, that's Athletic Greens dot com slash atlas guys also special shout out to sticky paws podcast studio in vegas they've been an awesome host for teddy this week as he's in vegas with his family and we're recording remotely so shout out to sticky paws in las vegas appreciate the help guys when you did the fight with um with showtime the collab with showtime when um when Connor fought um, Floyd. I always think back to that time when Connor walks up on stage with the microphone and goes right over to Espinosa and just starts calling him a weasel right to his face. Was there any part of you that was like, I guess Espinosa, I guess you have to punch him in the face because you can't possibly just let this guy disrespect you. And like, I mean, it's like, it was the most awkward thing ever. What was going through your mind when he was doing that? And did you know he was going to go after Espinosa? I, I had no idea. And there was nothing awkward about it. It was incredible. Um, you know, Connor sniffed that guy out in one day. We, we had, we had, we had a stop up in, um, uh, I I think we went to, uh, Montreal. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, no, we were in Toronto. We were in Toronto. Then I think it was the next one by the next one. He had figured that guy out. And, uh, has there ever been, could, could you have nailed it any better? Uh, you know, not only is he a weasel, he looks exactly like a weasel, and it's the perfect nickname for that guy. It's incredible. <laughs> it was the highlight of the uh, of that whole promo tour to me. I was like, man, that was like you said, he figured him out right away. It was like, look, Damn. I just finished complaining about one sided fights. That's one I enjoyed. <laughs> <laughs> I love when he turns around and says, "What? You're gonna do something?" Down <laughs> there, shut your fucking mouth. <laughs> yeah, that was that was, <laughs> that was brilliant. That was pretty damn good. That was pretty good. The only thing better than those, than that one side of beatdown is when you jump on Oscar on social media. Poor Oscar. I almost want to jump in and go like, Dana, please, will you leave this guy alone? Like he's uh, beaten and he's battered. Get, leave him alone. If, if you didn't notice, I have left him alone. You know, he just came out. I was telling, uh, you know, Habib just started his own promotion. And I said, listen, yep. Habib has no idea, but he's going to know. You know, you got, you're going to learn. You know what it's like to be a promoter, and then De La Hoya comes out and says, "Ah, oh, Khabib, it's easy." Like, yeah, it's easy. You don't fucking do anything. <laughs> you lost every fighter you ever fucking had, and you literally do nothing. Of course, it's fucking easy. You don't do anything. One hundred percent. Yeah, you, you've advanced the sport of boxing big time, Oscar. Oh my god, I'm done. I didn't even. Well, I guess I didn't now, but you know, I, I left it alone. I just, it's, it's embarrassing at this point. Dana. Yeah. Um, for all the fans out there that are obviously pretty happy that you got into the this sport, the UFC sport, over 20 years ago, um, they probably, in some very strange way, without realizing it, need to be a little maybe thankful to a mobster named Whitey Bulger. Right. <laughs> um, can you? <laughs> I don't have to say anymore. Uh, obviously, well, after that, you you left Boston. You were living up in Boston, and you moved to Vegas, where you wound up being well, being who you are, and creating what you created. Because you did create it. You did come up with the idea and bring it to the Fatita Brothers, um, and you deserve credit for that. But can you can you talk about that a little bit about Whitey Bulger? Yeah, you know, everybody says it was Whitey. It wasn't him. It was his crew. And, Kevin uh, Weeks? Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> you know, Boston and boxing and everything that happened along the way is, is all, you know, part of the story and what, what, what led me here. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change any of it. It was, it was all uh, incredible, actually. 
It's an incredible. You know what's event. interesting about that, Dana? I I actually grew up in Somerville and went to Winter Hill High School and and knew Howie Winter. He was like my my dad's age, so I knew him from being around. And I knew I didn't know a Whitey and his guys, but like growing up there, you knew these people were always around. So to see how the whole story evolved with Whitey and Kevin and and that whole crew was crazy. I actually worked at the um, Billerick House of Corrections with Mickey Ward. I actually told him we were interviewing you today. He says to say hello. He was a guard there at the same time with me. And Dickie Eklund was an inmate there along with my brother when Mickey and I were, were guards together. It's a crazy story. Boston is a unique, crazy place, especially <laughs> in the fucking 80s, man. Yep. Boston in the 80s was, was a very unique place. And, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I lived right in the heart of Southie, and I lived there for years. And I'd never seen those guys. I didn't know what they looked like. I didn't, you know. But you, you know who runs shit in that town. But I'd never seen them until the day they walked into the gym and, and approached me. You also knew just from reputation that they weren't clowning around, that they would actually do something. Like it was One not, a, not a bullshit percent. thing. You're damn right they do. Yeah, you, th- those, those were dudes and a time and place that you didn't fuck with. You, you, uh, you know. You got that Delta plane ticket to Vegas. That's <laughs> well, that's the story. Could, can you just elaborate on it just a little bit so the fans, because they hear us talking around it, but a lot of fans out there won't know exactly, you know, what happened and what led you to Vegas and exactly the phone call and the money you owe. Yeah, so, so these guys rolled up on me one day at the gym and basically told me that I owed them money. And, uh, you know, there. I said, you know, it's like fifteen hundred bucks, twenty five hundred bucks, whatever the number was at the time. But you might as well ask me for twenty five thousand. <laughs> uh, I I, uh, I didn't have it, and they said, get it from your fucking girlfriend. They knew I had a girlfriend, so I said, yeah, she doesn't have it either. So I just sort of blew it off, and uh, you know, lived my life, was doing my thing, and then long story short, one day. I got a phone call at my house and they're basically like, you owe some money by tomorrow, one o'clock. I said, or what are you going to find out? So I literally hung up the phone. Hello, picked Delta, it back up and, Delta, you <laughs> exactly what I did. I hung up, picked it back up and got a one way flight to Vegas. The crazy thing is it wasn't even about the 1500 If it was $25, it's still, once you give it to them, you're giving all the time. It's that it, you're hooked. 100%, 100%. For people who don't know, back in the 70s and 80s in Charlestown in South Boston, they had a like series of unsolved murders where guys would walk into a bar full of people, shoot someone dead. The cops show up, ask 200 people in the bar, what happened? And every single person says they were in the bathroom. And it was like the unsolved murders, like the big highest per capita murder in the country at the time. It was like all Irish gangland slayings where no one would ever say 100%. a word out of fear of like these people. So when they say that you owe the money, you better run, pay or scram. And then you knew you couldn't call the police. You, you know, it was like, it, it was the unwritten law that you couldn't call the police. And then you end up finding out later that Whitey was in with the FBI and knew anybody that would call the police on him. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, exactly. Um, pretty, isn't it funny, Dana, how life, you know, has those twists and turns, how fate can be decided by something like that? Who would have thought that by forcing you to go to Vegas that it would turn your life around and, and create what it created. And, and the timing, everything in, in life is about timing. I was eventually going to go back to Vegas, but I definitely wasn't going back to Vegas that soon. And if I didn't go back <laughs> at the time that I went, you know, none of this shit would have lined up the way that it did. It's you're, you're absolutely right. It's incredible. Uh, it really is. Do you ever sit back and think to yourself, because I'm sure there's a part of you like everyone where you think, I'm just a regular guy and things just went together. And now you view like Dana White, you're speaking at the Republican convention, you're friends with the president, regardless of your politics. It's still unbelievable that you're on speed dial with a president of the United States. Does it ever, do you ever sit back and think to yourself like, holy shit, I did this and like take a minute to like soak it all in and enjoy it? Yeah, you know what? Every once in a while, uh, Lorenzo Fertitta and I, whether we're drinking or whatever it'll be, we'll, we'll end up calling each other and going, when you start lining up everything the way that it laid out, it, it's fascinating. Fascinating. Unbelievable. 
Yeah, super it's, happy it's, to see super happy to see someone from Boston. It's almost very relatable where I'm like, you're a couple I think you're a couple years older than me. I just turned 50, but I look at you and I'm like, man, that guy just took the, took the opportunity and like kicked ass all the way to the top. It's awesome. I'm really happy for you. So, I don't want to be too it, much man. of an ass kisser, but congratulations. No, you know what? That's Boston, baby. That's fucking Boston. You know you know who of all people, you know who calls me and tells me shit like that all the time is Bob Kraft. Bob Kraft is oh, like, yeah. I love the fact that you're a Boston guy and you did this and you did that. I got Bob Kraft telling me that. I'm like, eh, you've done pretty fucking well yourself too. You yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, that, that's Boston, man. That, that's, that's how Boston people treat Boston people. Half of them will celebrate you. The other half will wish death on you. It's pretty, pretty standard. <laughs> <laughs> you know, all for, all for that, uh, Dana, since there was a certain name that was mentioned a couple minutes ago in the middle of that conversation, I I obviously don't know you well. Met you a couple times and know who you are. But um, you you have a trait that I think you have, I believe you have, that, um, that I do admire. Um, I think it's one of the most important traits, actually, for a person. It's the trait of loyalty. And um, early on, it, with the UFC's infancy there, there wasn't a lot of places that would allow you in, you know, into a venue with the UFC. Uh, and and quite frankly, you you know, you weren't allowed, the commissions in New York wouldn't allow the fights. I remember when that was going on and different places. And Donald Trump allowed you into, if my memory serves me right, into the Taj Mahal. And That's right. And you never forgot that. I mean, you obviously was very helpful to you um, to bring you in when other people were closing their doors to the UFC product. And you wound up obviously campaigning for him in 2016. And then later on when he uh, when he bid again for the reelection and you've been loyal to to him since. Uh, talk about that. Yeah, so, uh, you know, when we first bought this thing, this thing had such a bad stigma attached to it that venues didn't even want us to come there. So if you think about the time, the Trump brand is here. You know, the UFC brand is, you know, down here. <laughs> and uh, he got it. He loved it. And, and he said, we'd love to have you here at the Taj Mahal. Cut us a great deal. Showed up for the first fight of the night and stayed till the last fight of the night. Watched the whole show, both the shows that we did at the Taj. Um, and then after that, every good thing that ever happened to me in my career, Trump would reach out out of the blue and say, congratulations. I'm so happy for you. You know, I knew you guys were going to make it. You, you, this, that, and all this stuff. Couldn't be a nicer guy. Then he calls me up and, and, and says, I would like you to, to, to speak for me at, at, the, uh, at the convention. Everybody, and I mean fucking everybody told me not to do it. Don't do this. This is this. You shouldn't get into politics. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do that. I'm like, are you crazy, man? All the stuff that this guy, the, 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 the guy, the guy that this guy has been to me for the last 20 years. Oh, and just for the record, when Trump called me, he said, uh, listen, if you don't want to do this, I completely understand. And it's no big deal, but I would be honored if you, if you would speak at the convention. Yeah. There's no fucking way in hell I'm not doing that for him. Then once I, I spoke and, and uh, you know, our friendship went to a whole nother level. And, you know, you couldn't ask for a more stand up. Ask anybody who has ever known Trump, you know, has been friends with him for years. Everybody loves him. Well, I, like I said, um, to me, loyalty is if I had one. If I had a choice of having a person around me, or even a fighter, to be quite frankly, um, with one trait, it would be that trait because I believe there's there's power to that trait. Because I'm with you. That's it. I I just believe that. I believe that to be loyal to someone, you have to be strong. You have to be able to sacrifice. You have to be able to risk yourself. That's strength. That's strength. I look when I say even fighters. You know the fight I think of Dana right away. Um, that didn't come far from you guys. Marvin Hagler. Yeah. That that guy was loyal to the Petronelli brothers. And they, they, um, a lot of people, I happen to know for a fact, um, 
begged him, tried to convince him to get away from them. He never, ever would do that. That's incredible. Uh, yeah. And, and it, it worked well for him. You know, uh, when, when people talk about him and when I talk about him, obviously maybe one of the greatest southpaws and greatest middleweights of all time, uh, could fight inside, could fight outside, could do everything, could punch, obviously one of the greatest chins of all time. But all of that, the core to all of that, everything that I just mentioned, all those characteristics, all those talents, abilities, his greatest ability, his greatest talent was character. It was based around character. It was the strength to depend on him. That's what you want in a loyal friend, that you could depend on a friend. Just so a simple true, thing like that. And there's been, you know, you know better than anybody knows how fucking dirty the fight business is, man, and how everybody's just, you know, it doesn't take much to get somebody to cut somebody's throat in the fight business. <laughs> but there's been a lot of fighters that, that have been incredibly loyal to me, and I've been incredibly loyal to them. Conor McGregor's one of them. You know, Connor's a fucking handful, boy, you know. But when you look at the way fighters are built, they're, they're different than everybody else on this planet. But the Ronda Rousey's, the Chuck Liddell's, the Matt Hughes's, you know, um, you know, Conor McGregor, there's a lot of, and I don't want to not mention, you know, people, but there's been a, a, a lot of fighters over the last 20 years that have been very loyal. Yeah, I mean, I talk about it often when I was, when my gig was doing ESPN fights at ringside, I would um, I would talk about that. I would talk about the difference between the neon talents and the quiet talents. The neon talents that everybody bragged about, everybody embraced, everybody you know would would want to see if they were going to be involved in a fighter. They wanted to see how fast they were, how powerful they were, how explosive they they were, how how they could knock walls down with right hands and left hands. But they forgot about the talents of dependability, the talents of reliability, the talents and the ability to find a way, to persevere, uh, to not give in, to not compromise. And those are talents. Those are freaking every bit of talent as speed, as power. But people don't see that. And then they will see an upset where somebody upsets a guy like Tyson who has all the other talents in the freaking world and some. Then they say, well, how, how, how? He, this guy didn't have the talent Tyson had. Yes, he did. You just didn't see it. Anyway, um, I just wanted to mention that. The other thing I want to ask you, Dana, when you guys, when you guys started, when you started, obviously you just touched on some names, but who was the most important? There's always pioneers. Who is the most important of all the pioneers? I know there's going to be more than one, and it should be, of the early fighters to get to sport, you know, on this path. Um, I, in my head, there's guys like Tito Ortiz, Chuck Liddell, Ken Shamrock, um, and and the Gracies. But uh, can you touch on that? Yeah, I mean, obviously the Gracies are the ones that started this whole thing. You know, they they were fighting. They would challenge anybody from other schools. If you thought you were tougher than them, come on over and, and, and they, you would fight. Um, that's how the whole thing got started. But in, in our era, the UFC era, when, when me and the Fertitas got involved, you know, the, the real important players at the time were, were the, the, the Chuck Liddells, Matt Hughes, um, Rich Franklin, guys like that. And again, more for, you know, not only did they become huge stars for us, but, you know, they're incredibly loyal to the company, too. Um, but you have to have some of the bad guys sprinkled in there, too. You know what I mean? <laughs> they were great storylines, you know? There was nobody worse than Tito Ortiz, the worst. <laughs> Colby um, Covington? <laughs> uh, well, no, I'm Col saying... Colby plays a good guy bad guy. The bad, bad guy at a time when, uh, when we're fucking $40 million in the hole, and yeah. all you do nonstop every day when you get up is try to fuck us. That's what I'm talking about, bad guy. I got you. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Fair yeah. point. So who would be, I mean, out of, I guess the Gracies kind of 
we both said it. I've never mentioned there. You kind of confirmed it, but if you gave the credit to the guy that you would, or the guys you would hit your wagon to in those early stages that brought the UFC, you know, to the forefront, would it be the Gracies and the Chuck Liddell's and them? It would be the Gracies, yeah. yeah you know, yeah. the original UFC. Yeah, yeah, the Gracies yeah. Gracies kicked that whole thing off, um, you know, with their style of jujitsu and their style of fighting. And, you know, it, it caught the world's imagination. Yeah, it did. And the other thing was it added a whole new element to fighting because we'd never seen people go to the ground. Unbelievable. And fight on the ground. And they could beat any opponent, bigger, stronger, faster, no matter what the deal was, no matter what style it was, they'd figure out a way to beat you. Use their legs like a python from a tree. I mean, yep. that's that's the way I visualized when I first saw it. And I saw one of the Gracies on the floor should have been submitted. I'll say it again. Should have been submitted. Uh, a mortal person would have been. But no. No, they have a cold. They go to another place. They go to a dark room that other people don't enter. And they enter it. And guess what? They put light on in that dark room. And here he is on the floor getting pounded. He was in a hold that should have been a submission hold by all rights. And he don't submit. And and I'm like, oh my God, what is what is this who is this guy? Like, was I sleeping when the spaceship landed and dropped this guy off? And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, just like a python dropping out of a tree, the legs get wrapped around this guy's neck and it's over. And I'm like, holy crap. That was something different that I just saw right there. I never saw anything like that at the time. So true. None of us had. The whole world hadn't. They they introduced the world to ground fighting and Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And, and another guy who deserves a ton of credit for helping build this sport and, and, you know, during our era is Joe Rogan. Yes. You know, because the reality is, is that when we got into this, you know, everybody understood stand-up fighting, no matter what happened, punching, kicking, elbows, we all get that. The, the, the big thing for us was when it goes to the ground, how many people are really going to understand what's going on and what they're seeing? Because if you've never done jujitsu, yeah. you don't know what the hell they're doing. You know, the guy's legs are on him. He's, his arm is over here. Joe Rogan was so, first of all, passionate about the sport, number one. Number two, so good at walking you through what was going on before it even started to happen. You know, to have a guy like him behind the mic, he was very instrumental in helping uh, build the sport. A hundred percent. You know, when I watch it, even now, I call it floor chess. That's what it is for me. Mm-hmm. Because now I appreciate it. I'm, I'm, the, I'm not going to lie. For what? I didn't understand the intricacies of it, the nuances of it before. Early, I thought it was boring. Yep, then me I, too. Yeah, but then I started looking in a more intelligent way, a deeper way, and I'm saying, wow, this is chess. I mean, this this is uh, this is Bobby Fischer uh, against uh, that Russian guy. What was that Russian guy named? Spassky or something? <laughs> um, <laughs> I said, this is high, sophisticated stuff. My God, look at these little moves here and what they're doing and what they got to go through to do it. True. Jeez. Um, it's impressive. But the teams of people that you've put together to describe that, like you said, with Rogan, you, I think that one of the best things the UFC has done is put the right combinations of personalities on every call, every time. And again, I know people are going to be like, oh, this guy's an ass kisser. But it really is unbelievable the job that you guys have done of putting those all the elements of the production together. It's, it's masterful. Like the people working behind the scenes do an awesome job. It has nothing to do with ass kiss, and it's literally the toughest part of the job to find people who can actually sit down and walk you through what's going on. Because every time we do an event, there's new people watching that have never seen it before. And, and these people have to be, um, you know, guided and taught and, and told what's going on so that they can understand the sport. And it is by far the hardest part of, of the production. 
The other thing that you have going for you is your guys, the fighters. We've Teddy and I started out doing boxing. We'd have a hard time getting some of the top guys to come on occasionally. The UFC, I think Dustin Poirier was the first guy who mentioned Teddy in a post-fight interview, and we said, let's get him on and talk to him. Since then, you know that we've interviewed every single male champion except Kamaru Usman from the UFC. I don't know if you've watched many of them, but they, th- some of the UFC fans have really embraced us, and we've embraced them. It's been an awesome journey, and I think that that's a part that goes unmentioned is like that the fighters are like they're buying in they're promoting it as much as as much as the company is where in boxing 100%. everyone's got their own fiefdom and they almost like don't want to promote the whole sport networks won't mention the other champions it's insanity you're, you're so right so right yeah and our fan base man if if you uh if you are a fan of the sport and you like um and you start covering like like you know guys like you to cover this thing no greater fans on earth than our fans. Listen, they can be a little rough on you here and there, but <laughs> it's part of the, part of the business. That's fun. that's the fun part. Now they're very gracious, to be quite frank. When I go to events, um, I tell them, "Thanks for letting me in, guys." You know, yeah, they're, uh, they're awesome. It's true. Uh, that's cool. You know, we were just talking a second ago about things you know you're not used to that are not common in. In your world, and you see it for the first time, like jujitsu, and you have to grow an appreciation for it. But there's a universal appreciation for greatness. And I'll tell you a quick story. Um, I obviously was mentored by Customato. I spent eight years with him up in Catskill training fighters, and that's all I was there for train fighters, develop fighters, develop hopefully champions, develop men. And I, I've Whenever I would get a break, I try to just get a little break because I cuz believes in seven days a week, and um, you know it, it, that's what he believed in, and so I'm in the gym seven days a week. So there was a time where I, I got I get a minute by myself. I'm off in the TV room, and I just realized I'm making it sound like a prison. It wasn't a prison, the TV room, <laughs> and so I'm off on my own, and I'm watching the Olympics. Now, you guys could help me with it, but I think it was either Nadia Kamenich or Olga Colbert. I think it was Kamenich. It was the first 10 ever. A uh, young girl, you know, young girl from one of the Eastern European communist countries at the time. And she's up on the balancing beam. And so Cus comes in the room, and he first he yells at me, what are you doing not watching boxing? I said, Cus, please leave me alone. I'm, I'm just watching something over here. And all of a sudden, he looks at the day. What are you watching, Atlas? I'm watching this, this, the Olympics and this girl here. And all of a sudden, he looks. And at the moment he looks, he has no clue of anything, especially gymnastics, not custom model. He looks, and he sees this little girl on this balancing beam in this talk position with her legs over her head, and not a fiber in her body is moving. And you see the concentration and the, just the expression on her face. The camera got a good shot. And all of a sudden, he just points to it. He has no idea. He just points and says, champion. And he walks out of the room. And then all of a sudden, 10, 10, 10. I'm like, where's this guy come from? And first 10 in the history ever. But he identified immediately one thing, he knew nothing about gymnastics, just like people know nothing sometimes about jiu-jitsu. But when you looked at Gracie, you knew one thing. You were watching something special. You were watching a champion. And that's what you were watching when you watched this young girl in the Olympics on a balancing beam. Everyone saw that, champion. And to me, that's the best way I could define those type things that you're not necessarily familiar with, but you are familiar with the behavior of what a champion looks like. So I agree with you a hundred percent. And yes, it was Nadia Komenich that scored the 10 in the yeah. 1976 summer Olympics in uh, Montreal. Yeah. It That's was a true sports uh, fan. <laughs> it was pretty, oh, well, yeah, it was pretty extraordinary. Dana right now, I, I know it's kind of like asking a parent a question. That's almost impossible. You know, who's your favorite, but who, who's, who's your favorite UFC fighter? Um, of all time and right now. So two different questions. That's so hard. I mean, yeah, I know. 
I mean, I mean, I mean, the Chuck Liddell and Ronda Rousey are, are two of the people who really helped build this business. You know what I mean? And like I told yeah, you earlier, sure. super, yeah. super loyal. Right now, I think I think Kamara Usman is the pound for pound best fighter in the world. Wow, what this guy has done and what he's accomplished over the last several years is amazing. He's he's on his second run here. He's on a, a on a lap. He's lapping these guys now. He's beating them all twice. Unreal. So uh, yeah, right now I think he's the pound for pound best in the world, and another good dude, great guy to work with. I think Habib Nurmagomedov probably, you know could be called the greatest ever. Who knows if he would have stuck around longer. You know, it was unfortunate, the passing of his father. And, uh, you know, he's just gotten to a point in his life where, you know how that goes too, guys, when you got so much fucking money, man, it's just, it changes everything. And, uh, you know, the fight business is tough business to get up and go to every day when, when you got that kind of money. I think there's a guy over in England, really. I didn't know I was going to go here. We go spontaneous, right? That's what a conversation should be. Um, I didn't know I would go there, but you know who I think about right away when you say that? Joshua. Made too much money. I do. Yep. He accepts defeat too easily, too graciously. <laughs> you know, I want a good winner and a good loser. Don't get me wrong. I believe as much as anybody, if not more than most people, about that. Uh, about, you know, showing that kind of graciousness um, to whether you win or lose. Uh, but he he's too gracious when it comes to it, like a guy that made too much money. Um, when he beat Klitschko, I said, this is exactly what heavyweight boxing needs right now. This is the guy, you know, yada, yada, yada. Hey, Dan, I want to be super sensitive to your time over the Christmas break here, but can I ask you two quick questions before we let you go? First yeah. thing is, Francis Ngannou, I know it's coming down to crunch time here. He's fighting for the, he's fighting Cyril Ngannou, 22nd. I plan on going to that fight. And um, if he wins that and he's not under contract, like, how do you handle that situation? And I know you've probably been asked this a million times. I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but I think people no, are really no, curious. Like, what happens? You can ask me anything. Um, and <laughs> actually, Fr Francis and I bumped into each other the other night at dinner, and we had a good talk. And uh, and, and and he's not out of contract, uh, you know, if he wins that fight. I think he's got one more fight with us after that. Um, but, uh, you know, listen, I, I say it all the time, man. Uh, this sport's fun for me. I love doing this, you know. And contrary – to, to the narrative out there, you know, we've made a lot of people very wealthy. And if you don't want to be here, if this is not where you want to be, well, that's not fun for you. And it's definitely not fun for me either. So, you know, th these are all grown men and women and everybody has to make their own decisions in life and go down their own paths. Um, but I think that Francis and I had a good conversation. I think Francis has been misguided too by some people that aren't very bright. Um, you know, that, that doesn't help either. When you got some people behind you that, you know, have no fucking clue what they're talking about. It, it, it doesn't help your situation. Is there any scenario in which you allow Nate Diaz or Masvidal to fight Jake Paul? No, I, no. <laughs> I, I figured that was the answer, contract, but I know that that's fight. what people want to ask. People want well, you to know, know. You notice he wants to fucking fight everybody that's not in his weight class, you know, guys that are older and, and all this bullshit. Go, go find a boxer. Go <laughs> hump somebody else's leg, you goofball. <laughs> Listen, Dana, um, my guy here, um, his name is Ken, He he's obviously um, – I'm not going to be as sensitive to your time as he was. I'm going to ask a couple more. <laughs> I'm, all, I'm all good. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, the thing that I want to ask you is um, you, got, you got the Fatita brothers uh, who own Station Casinos, if, I, if my memory is correct, um, probably about 20 years ago, to buy the UFC. And I just want to, for... For history's sake, I don't know, legacy, history, whatever, historic value, I want to kind of link you into something that you probably haven't thought about, quite frankly. Um, but when you did that, when you got the Fatita brothers 
to go and purchase the UFC brand. Again, I believe it was about $2 million. And, and then X amount of years later, it gets sold for $4 billion. Am I correct? Something like that? Right. Four, $4 billion and a little bit of change. Yeah, um, $4.025 billion. There it is. That's, that's a little bit of change. So you, you get them to come in, purchase it for $2 million, you sell it a few some years later for four billion plus dollars. You are part of the greatest buys of all time. Nobody ever talks about that, but I just wanted to mention that because I mean I remember when George Steinbrenner bought the Yankees from CBS for ten million dollars. Again, if my memory is right, if I'm off a little bit, I'm I'm off a little bit. $10 million, one of the greatest buys of all time. It's worth, well, who knows what the Yankees are worth, but it's worth billions. And then you had Jerry Jones come in and buy the Dallas Cowboys. Again, uh, I don't, it was, it was I think Trump it was change. Million. Yeah, Trump change. Trump change. I know, and I'm not being disrespectful to money, you know, people, uh, how that's a lot of money. I get it. But Trump change compared to what it's worth now, which is billions of dollars. Who knows what the Dallas Cowboys I, I, I look, it's the, mo- it's the most uh, expensive uh, NFL franchise. I look at you. I put you in that group. I mean, right up there with uh, with that purchase of that island called Manhattan. That was a pretty good buy too. Um, some years ago, when when they bought the the Manhattan Island there, which is now in New York, called New York City. Uh, that was pretty good. I think that was about twenty four dollars. That might have been the best of all time. Uh, as far as getting value uh, for your dollar, but you ever think about that? You ever? Uh, I guess you and the Fatitas, when you when you're together, you must sometimes say, "Wow, uh, we did pretty freaking good." Two million dollars to four million dollars. <laughs> yeah, we, we we definitely do. Um, it's it, and you're right. It, it, you're dead on, Teddy. I mean, Steinbrenner bought the Yankees for eight point seven million dollars. There it is. Eight point seven million. And, and you know, God knows what that team would go for today—anywhere between three and five billion, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, Jerry Jones, um, same thing. I, I, I think he bought it for for like uh, six point nine two million dollars. Oh, pretty good. Million. Pretty good. And, and they're the most exp- you know the, the the most expensive NFL franchise on the planet right now. So yeah, I mean, we're up there with some of those great, uh, you know sports business stories and, and it's, it's it's obviously awesome can i i want to tell you a funny story a little story um it was um, i don't obviously i don't think you're aware of it and why would you be well it didn't turn out to be anything important nobody listened to my advice so um <laughs> i'm not afraid to say that but when i was probably uh, somewhere around 20 years ago and i was working the ESPN fights, calling the fights. We were doing some fights in Vegas, obviously, at the station casinos, which was owned by your your partners, the Fatita brothers. And I got a call, and I I think it was Lorenzo. I'm not 100%. Definitely. Yeah. And I got a call, Dana. I get a phone call. Hey, this is Lorenzo Fatita. And I didn't know who he was, quite frankly. And um, he says, I'm, you know, I'm involved with the UFC. Have you seen it? And I, I had seen a little bit of it with the Gracies. Um, and he said, I would like some, if you were up to it, Teddy, I would like you to give me some suggestions how you think we could make this sport a little more entertaining, fan-friendly. I actually wrote them down and faxed them. I, that was the one thing I could do. I could fax. I, I, I got rid of a, flat, a flip phone about two years ago. Um, and I still do faxes. Once in a while doing a broadcast, doing a podcast from my house, um, the fax machine will go off. And then people actually, because I don't go on the internet, so my son will say that. People are like, Teddy's really old school. A freaking fax machine went off in the middle of his <laughs> podcast. So he said, can you put a list together of some of your suggestions? So I did, and I faxed it over to him. I remember one of them. I don't remember the others. 
One was to have a shot clock. <laughs> that was my brilliant idea, like the NBA. To have a shot clock where the fighters would be forced within that time zone of the shot clock to stand, not go to the floor, stand and strike, throw punches. And because I thought that, I just thought that the stuff on the floor back then, I, I just wasn't as developed, as educated, as smart, as patient um, as I hopefully am now. And I thought the stuff on the floor, as great as the Gracies were, was, could be boring. So I said, you got to have a shot clock. Well, I looked for that shot clock for a couple of years and I gave up. You know, I, I, <laughs> I never saw the shot clock. But I just wanted to tell you, I just wanted to share that story with you. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that, I'm glad you guys did okay without my advice. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Thanks, <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's the type of person Lorenzo is. You know, Lorenzo, uh, wants to hear all these people's opinions, you know, uh, you know, people that he respects. So we, uh, we obviously both have a lot of respect for you. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate it very much. My last question will be this one. When you, obviously there was a lot of important decisions you had to make early on. Um, to me, I don't know if it was directly you, but obviously it comes under, under your realm. One of, one of the very important decisions was when you decided, I thought it was brilliant, I, I, because you had to have credibility, you had to have authority, you had to have somebody in charge, you had to have a connection to civilization, quite frankly, because a lot of people thought the sport was too barbaric. And you had to have rules. And I thought your decision, Dana, at the time, or the UFC's decision, but I figure it was, again, I figure it would fall under you, was when you hired Mark Ratner, who obviously I knew very well because for years he was the commissioner in Vegas of all the boxing. Uh, he was one of the most prominent commissions, commissioners in the country, quite frankly. He ran a good show. He, he ran a good ship. And when you hired him to come over and to leave boxing, and to come over to the UFC as, you know, as the commissioner, the regulatory uh, chief, whatever title it was, I don't know. But basically to be the commissioner, I thought it was a brilliant move, but I thought it was an important move at that stage in the UFC's, um, you know, beginning. Yeah, thank you. And, 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 you know, we agreed. First of all, Mark Ratner had been on the commission for so many years, done so many big fights. But the, the, the most important thing, is how respected he was by all the other commissioners. Yeah, you know what I mean? So respected. And, um, you know, it, it ended up being one of, the, one of the best moves we ever made. Yeah, I thought it was, well, I said enough. I thought it was a brilliant move. But I thought it was a brilliant move for the reasons I said it. You needed that, that credibility in that realm, in a realm that there would be rules, that there wasn't a bunch of cavemen just attacking each other. Um, you, you needed to have that with the public. And to, to the degree that he brought it, he brought that. Yep, I agree. Now, we, we love Ratner here, man. That guy's going to be here, you know, the rest of his life. You know, he sends me a donation every year. He sends me a donation every year to my charity foundation. You know, we've had it for 25 years. We just help people that fall between the cracks, people that, uh, you know, families aren't able to do things that, uh, they wish they could do for their kids when they're sick. Their insurance doesn't cover it, and we'll step in and we'll take care of it, and, you know, whatever that kind of stuff is. Um, and he has never, in all these years, 25 years now, he's probably embarrassed that I'm saying this, but he always sends a donation. Um, and now he sends, the only difference from when he sent it when he was a boxing player, now he sends a card that says UFC something. You know, it's a, and I got to tell you. It's UFC a, Big Shot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't say Big Shot, but it says UFC something. And then I got to say this, though. This will be my parting, my parting whatever you want to call it, jab. Um, and listen, I, I don't mean that in boxing. I don't need to tell you anymore. It's my life. But. Um, it was nicer than the boxing cards. It was. 
It is. Uh, and listen, Dana, thank you. I just want to thank you personally and obviously collectively, but personally, I just want to, I want to thank you for taking the time, especially during the holidays, uh, to jump on here with us and to give us your time. And I want to wish you and your family nothing but health and the best for the rest of the holidays, the rest of the year and forever. Thanks, buddy. I, I really appreciate it. Um, and, you know, we, we have nothing but respect for you and uh, love the fact that you've you've been so open minded about the sport and actually become a fan of it. Yeah. I and am. Ken, Ken, I want to tell you. So, I, I, you know, you, you asked me about Jake Paul fighting guys over here. I, I wanted to tell you, I, 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 I got a challenge for Jake Paul. Give it to me. So this guy keeps saying that I that I'm a that I'm a cokehead. Right. He can randomly cocaine test me for the next 10 years. If I can randomly steroid test him for the next two. All right. There it is. The challenge is made. Hey, before we let you go, tell me about Howlerhead. I've been seeing you everywhere. Congratulations on all the success you've had there. One of the things we try to do on the show is give guys an opportunity to talk about things they're doing outside of fighting. And yeah, uh, like you really need us, like you really need us to campaign and promote your thing. But we're glad to do it. <laughs> yeah, tell me I, about I, it. I got into it during the pandemic, like everybody got into alcohol during the pandemic, and. Uh, <laughs> You know, uh, I, I fell in love with with the brand, and uh, I've been having fun doing it. It's it's been it's been a good time. Congratulations and, th- and, and on all the success in the UFC and with the uh, with the Harler head. It was awesome to talk to you. I've been like looking forward to this one for a long time. I'm coming out to the fight in Anaheim. Dave Lockett, your PR guy, has been unbelievably helpful with everything. So thanks to Dave. But I'm looking forward to meeting you in person. I assume you'll be out there at the Anaheim show. I'll be there, brother. Looking forward to it. Thank you, brother. Thank you for doing this. Really appreciate it. Happy holidays. Yep. Happy New Year, boys. Thanks, guys. You too. Thanks, Dana.